You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. So it is a very special pleasure to introduce Steve Ballmer today. As you all know, he is the CEO of Microsoft. And uh, the interesting thing is, as many of you probably know, he started out at Harvard University. And down the hall from him in his dorm, who should be there but Bill Gates. So I'd like all of you to look around and look at all your fellow classmates and imagine which of these folks you're going to be starting the next big thing with. Because what happened is after Steve graduated, he went off to Procter & Gamble, and then two years later came back to Stanford. I don't know if you all know that, but he came to Stanford to the business school. And after the first year, during the time he would go do a summer internship, he was asked by Bill to go up and check out Microsoft up north in Washington. So he checked it out and decided the rest was history. So I want to introduce our, this fabulous, wonderful leader who's going to share some of his insights about the last, I guess, 29 years at Microsoft. Without further ado, Steve Ballmer. Thanks, it's uh, fun to have a chance to be here. Uh, I've been in this theater now exactly three times in my life. Today, I gave some speech about five years ago in here and I got a question from a student who suggested that we go borrow a bunch of money. When we had a bunch of money, I had to really think hard about that for like three years. But the first time I was in here was sort of a major moment. I was at Stanford and the play Pippin, my favorite play, was performed on this stage. And I remember thinking just how awesome this place was and it's sort of fun for me to have a chance to, to speak here. Although it's not at all what I expected. Uh, I'm, here, it's, I'm here in the Bay Area for one reason and one reason only. Uh, I was meeting with uh, a few interns uh, Nikhil was one of them last summer. Uh, he's in the class. And he says to me, come on, man, will you come speak to our class? And I said, well, all right, sure, I'll come speak to the class. And I said, what, what's it all about? He said, oh, yeah, it'll be, you know, like 50 people, something like that. And we'll all just kind of chit-chat. And then I, I pick up the paper on the way down here that sort of reminds me of what we're doing. I said, what, what, what's with this thousand person thing? I thought it was kind of 50 people in an entrepreneurship class. But it is nonetheless a delight to be here. Uh, we're not going to get Nikhil back for the summer, but we're working hard. Nikhil, Ali, Steve B, by the way, at Microsoft.com for other bright, talented people looking for work. Uh, we're always hiring. Uh, even while the economy's tough, there's always a place uh, in some part of Microsoft uh, for, uh, for the most talented folks around. So uh, I'm glad to have a chance to be here. I'll try to talk for 25 minutes or, or less, and then I guess we have a chance to do some questions and answers, at least from, I don't know who the students in the class are or how they'll tell, but nonetheless, I guess we get to do that. I'm going to start with just a little bit about the economy. Not because it's the cheeriest or sort of warmest subject to start with, 
But at least if you're thinking about entrepreneurship, it's probably the right place to start. You say, my gosh, I am graduating, I am starting a company, I'm moving forward in the worst economy in whatever, 70 plus years. Is that a good thing or not? Well, first let's start with the basics. It is really a bad economy. Business is tough. People really are being laid off. We, we, we had a round we did yesterday. It's, it really is a tough, tough, tough uh, environment. There's no question about it. And I like to characterize, at least for folks at Microsoft, that I don't actually think what we're doing, we didn't go down and we're going back up. The economy's kind of resetting over a year, two years, three years at a lower level. And then we will build from a lower base. And that happened because essentially the world borrowed too much money. So the question I got here five years ago, should you go borrow a bunch of money? It's a prescient question. The world had too much debt. Just as a statistic, and you'd say, why are we talking about this in entrepreneurship? Because you've got to understand a little bit kind of the environment in which you work. But consumer plus business debt was about 300-odd percent of GDP before our recent bubble burst. Before the Depression, it was 160% of GDP. Uh, it means we probably at least have one or two GDPs worth of extra money that's being been used to fund business investment, to fund startup companies, to buy PCs and flat panel displays and servers and houses and blah blah blah. And now you say, whoosh, all that extra debt is going to get flushed out of the system and it's not going to be replaced. Because after one of these there's been four of them in the last 200 years of US history. After one of these bubbles, people don't immediately start borrowing again. Everybody's a little more cautious than they were before. So it's a tough, it's a tough economy. And you'd say, well, geez, I want to do a startup. Is there going to be investment out there? Well, geez, I want to sell to customers, and they're going to need to buy equipment to, to do things. Or, geez, I, I want to appeal to advertisers. And, they, there's got to be a consumer demand out there. Those are some of the kinds of ideas that I'm sure are swirling, at least in some, some entrepreneurial heads in this audience. And yet, in a sense, you could say there's really not a better time to start a business. If you've got the right idea, you will get some funding. The ideas that weren't good enough shouldn't have been funded, and they won't be funded today. So in a sense, the fact that there's a more critical screen, there's more of a careful thought process, the fact that customers are pickier with their money today, all of that really is a chance to make people better. One of our folks reminded me, Microsoft was started and Apple was started during kind of a recessionary period. General Electric, ironically, was, fun, was started right after the great deleveraging of 1873. That was the bubble before the Depression that was just like this one. So in a sense, there is opportunity. And there may be more opportunity in the long run, even if kind of the entrepreneurial opportunities are less frothy than they might have been in the short run. Particularly as a guy whose, whose business is, for the last 29 years, been software, the number of opportunities to create brilliant, genius, amazing ideas, the number of interesting things that we see people doing, it continues to be stunning. 
So there's not going to be any shortage of real possibility. And so the question is, will you have the patience and the tenacity and the interest to really start something uh, that's important? Uh, I started Microsoft, as uh, Tina said, almost 30, almost 30 years ago. I thought I'd give you my, somehow I'm not pointing correctly, uh, my, quote, entrepreneurial story. That's me uh, when I left Stanford. I, you know, I still part my hair, by the way, on the right, just like I did back then. <laughs> Um, you know, I did meet Bill Gates at Harvard, and he, our sophomore year in school, we lived down the hall from each other, and his friend from high school, they had started a, actually a company when they were in high school that uh, did software that processed uh, traffic tapes. I don't know if you noticed, but when you drive down the road, you sometimes see these rubber, uh, rubber tubes across the road. Well, it turns out in the old days, when you drive over one of those, it would punch holes in a paper tape in a box at the side of the road. And you used to have to ship them back to, back to Maryland. And Bill and Paul said, geez, let's buy one of these new Intel microprocessors. At the time, it was something called the Intel 4004, just to show you how old days that was. And they started a business processing these tapes for cities in the state of Washington. And then Bill came to Harvard, and they still loved microprocessors, and Paul Allen wanted to build a company to build computers with microprocessors, and somehow, even then, Bill kind of said, no, I know what we're good at, Paul. We're software guys. Let's not do that. And then finally, when our sophomore year in college, uh, the cover of Popular Electronics magazine, there was a picture of the first microprocessor-based computer, something called the Altair, and Bill and Paul decided to, quote, write all the software the machine would ever need. Of course, they didn't, but they wrote some important software uh, for the machine. And the company got started and was kind of purring along. We were 30 people when I joined. Uh, there were no business people. It was all programmers when I joined the company in, in 1980. I came in to, quote, be a business person, whatever that meant. Uh, didn't know much. Uh, frankly, all I'd ever really done is interview for jobs and market brownie mix. Uh, I wasn't exactly well-credentialed. I'd taken the first year at Stanford Business School so I could read a balance sheet. That was, that was pretty important. Uh, we didn't have that much money back then, so there wasn't much to read. But anyway, um, <laughs> those lessons were, were important. And then from there, we kind of, we just kept grinding and grinding, a few, I, a few bits of inspiration, a lot of perspiration. I just spent an hour with uh, a group of venture capitalists, and they said, hey, look, if you're going to tell entrepreneurs, I said, well, look, I'm going to go talk to some entrepreneurs, what would be your lessons from the early days? And they were simple, hire good people. We actually didn't have very good people when I started. Uh, Bill was good. There were like four or five very good people, and I went into Bill's office after I'd been there a month or so, and I said, we've got to hire 18 more people. On this is on top of the 30 that we had. He said, Steve, our people aren't even very good. Why do you want to hire 18 more? And you're going to bankrupt us. Go back to Stanford or something, but don't stay here unless you're going to do better than that. And so we just really worked hard getting good people, smart people. You know, Tina was joking around, look around at the people you know, because people you know, at least in my case, they wound up being super important. The initial programmers at Microsoft were people who grew up with Bill. We brought in people we knew from college, because those are the people you, you know and you trust if you, start, if you start something. But good people, and then a lot of patience. 
I think a lot of entrepreneurs think that things happen quickly. Success is you know, 90% inspiration, 10% perspiration. It's much more balanced than that. It's great idea with a lot of hard work, and then you work at it for a year, two years, three years, four years, five years, six years, seven years, eight, nine, ten. Some things that actually wind up being really important take more than 10 years to get popular. You wouldn't believe it reading the popular press, but it's really true. It's really true. It's true of Windows. It's true of uh, SQL databases from guys like Oracle. The Google guys were at it for a number of years before that thing really took off. There's a few exceptions, but most things you got to really grind on. And certainly that was kind of the history of Microsoft in the early days. We had some products. We were a tiny company. My parents thought I'd lost my mind to drop out of Stanford Business School to go join some company that made software. You know, I said, you know, software for, for, for personal computers, mom, dad. That's why I'm leaving the hallowed halls of Stanford. And my dad said, what the heck is software? <laughs> and my mother said, why the heck would a person need a computer? Well, okay, we're talking about 1980, and life was a little different in 1980. But it's those kinds of questions that, eh, you know, there's a little bit of spark, there's a little bit of a powerful force, and then there's just a lot of hard work to get from, from here to there. There we go. You know, if you say today, okay, well, you know, is all the good stuff in the days gone by? This is one of the questions I get a lot from people who are just starting out and say, wow, technology's changed so much. Last five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, you know, are all the great companies created? And the answer is no, not even at all. The truth of the matter is if you look at the technology industry, there's always a few big guys, some medium-sized guys, lots of small guys, and the names are always changing because the industry is so darn dynamic. And there's so much new stuff being invented. The way chips work is changing completely as we speak. You're able to get bigger and bigger displays at cheaper and cheaper prices. I didn't check this one out before I walked up here. <clears throat> Look, it's just a piece of plastic. It doesn't know a thing. I can touch it. I'm not controlling it. It doesn't recognize me and say, hey, Steve, stop beating on me. It doesn't see me, feel me, speak to me. I don't know. There's some song that sounds a little bit like that. <laughs> but that's, that's the future. That's where things are going. Today, you learn to speak the computer's language. If you want to write programs, you learn to write programs in the computer's language. If you want to control a program, file, open, copy, paste not get me ready for my trip to Stanford. My secretary is able to process that command. My computer cannot process that command. The, 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 the kinds of things that are going to be invented over the next several years is just, to me, outstanding. And particularly for somebody who's got skills in software. You don't even have to be interested in the tech field. Software is going to change so many fields. It'll change energy, environmental science. The impacts of software will be broadly felt. So I'm a bit of a zealot uh, on that as a particular expertise. But the chance for entrepreneurship is really, really high. We live in a world where I think things are really also changing based upon the fact that we're still quite early in the presence of the internet. 
people could say, well, the internet, we've, we've had that for 15 years. It's, you know, so much has been invented. And yet, really, the whole world of technology is being redone as we speak. Technology grew up with the computer, and now it's the computer, the PC, and maybe the smart TV. The computers, phones, and TVs didn't grow up assuming the internet. And frankly, the internet didn't grow up assuming smart PCs, phones, and TVs. And so the whole model of how software gets written to run intelligently in PC phones and TVs, to talk to the internet cloud, that's all going to get redone. Since I've been at Microsoft, the basic paradigm for how software gets written has changed a few times. Mainframes, PCs, client server, internet, and now we're in sort of a new Web 2, Web 3 kind of generation. Smartphones, smart PCs, smart TVs, talking to a smart internet. And that creates a whole generation of opportunity to disrupt the businesses that are out there, to create new businesses that people couldn't dream of before. We talk about the cloud. The cloud is kind of that smart internet presence talking to those smart clients. You know, a lot of people sort of question the fact, will we continue to need smartphones, smart PCs, et cetera? And the answer is yes. Yes, people will actually want to get the best they can get because this stuff's just so darn cheap. And as long, you know, Bill Gates, when he started Microsoft, said the hardware represents a form of free intelligence. We just have to have the software to switch it on. And that opportunity still, still exists. Your world needs to be brought together, the consumer. You have one identity on the phone, you got another on the internet, you got another at work, you got another at home. You may want them separate, but you may not want to manage the cacophony of things that you deal with today. You know, just take contacts. How many different places do you have to update when somebody switches, uh, switches home, switches phone number? Just how many different places do you go touch? Just simple things, so much to do, so much to do to improve the overall experience people have with these things. <laughs> See, I, could, I wish there was a camera in that darn screen. It seems to have a distance factor. Anyway, you know, at Microsoft, we're investing aggressively across the spectrum. Touch, voice, natural language input, smartphones, smart PCs, smart TVs. We've introduced a whole new platform for writing smart applications in the internet, a new version of Windows that we call Windows Azure. Our company this year will invest over $9 billion in R&D. Uh, nobody sort of, it's, you can't process what numbers like that mean. I can't, and I, I deal with them every day. It means we've got about 45,000 people involved creating software. And perhaps most importantly, we will invest the same amount of money this next 12 months that we did the last 12. We were going to increase it because of the economy, we won't. But it sure reflects the fact that we've got fundamental optimism about what can be created. You know, Microsoft's sort of a funny place. We've got these big businesses, but in the software business, big businesses need to be constantly recreated. A product like Windows is, in a sense, only as good as its last release or two. It's not just its last release, but its last release or two. And so we need to have this mix of sort of large, yeah, <laughs> thank you. Uh, <laughs> da 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 da, boom. Uh, anyway, 
moving right along. Uh, I kind of knew what I was doing when I walked down that road. But anyway, uh, you know, you need to have a mix, even in a big company, of smaller entrepreneurial projects, bigger entrepreneurial projects. It's not like running a factory. It's not like running a bank. It's not like running a retailer. Not just Microsoft, but nobody. In our business, you've got to be inventing new things because software doesn't wear out. It doesn't break, or at least if it breaks, it was broken when you finished it. It doesn't break over time the way physical goods do. And so the opportunity and need to invent, just like any other startup or entrepreneurial activity, remains strong. So we're investing. Venture capitalists, there's going to be less venture capital this year than last year. There's still probably, in my opinion, more venture capital than there are really good ideas to absorb the venture capital. So whether you're going to join a startup, whether you want to start a business yourself, whether you want to join a company like ours, you know, I think there's just incredible opportunity. We want to be kind of the partner and friend to people who are starting these businesses. We've made our tools now free for students, for startup companies, qualified startup companies. We've made our software free so we can bootstrap entrepreneurs who want to come with us and help pioneer and, and really pursue the future. The future for, for students, the student, for consumers, for businesses, uh, for the full range of, uh, range of things. I hinted at this earlier, but I, I really want to come back to this notion that the range of innovation, you live at a, an almost a better time. You're coming out of school almost a better time than Bill Gates and I did. Because the power of information technology to give new uh, innovation possibilities, not just in technology itself, but in science, in health, in education, is unbelievable. You're able to model today the physical world with computers in a way that was never possible before. People say we have an energy problem, what's the answer? We need better software, whether you believe in oil and gas to simulate or whether you need better tools to model, it, model what can happen with new forms of energy. Software accelerates the process. Pharmaceutical research, software accelerates the process. Uh, education, education's the one industry that never gets more efficient. This is not a slam at Stanford or other fine educational institutions, but in a sense, everybody says, hey, the only way to get more efficient is to actually have smaller class sizes. I mean, sorry, bigger class sizes, and yet people resist that. So how do we use information technology to actually improve and measure and advance education? Healthcare, I think everybody kind of understands that healthcare needs to be reborn and reinvented. And information technology is at the key of what doctors and nurses and other health professionals really do. So I think it's just a phenomenal time to be starting all kinds of companies. And I think leveraging and building on the kind of software that our company and our industry provides uh, is just a great, great opportunity. Uh, I just want to end uh, on the, this notion of good times. These are tough economic times, but these are times that I think are rich in opportunity. In a sense, I'm going to make kind of a radical statement. When I was a student here at the business school, most people wanted to become consultants or investment bankers. Those were the hot jobs. I love consultants and I love investment bankers. Uh, but consultants don't invent, 
and most of the products investment bankers invented are somewhat discredited in the current environment. <laughs> Entrepreneurs who invent, who create, will really add to the level of innovation, the productivity in the economy, will change the world, will create economic value, will drive jobs, and will have a heck of a lot of fun doing it. And so I think despite everything else, now's the time. Now's the time for people who, who care, who want to invent, who have skills in specific scientific and information technology areas. I think now's the time, and certainly I hope for many or most of you who choose that path, you'll, you'll do it with us, working with us, partnering with us, building on our tools and technologies, but I certainly wish, wish you all the best if you choose to take that path. And as I said, if, uh, if you're looking for something from us, steveb at microsoft.com, shoot me a little piece of email. Pleasure talking to you, and I'll look forward to questions. Which, which chair do you want? Do you have a preference? Sure. No, I'll, okay, I'll go this way. Okay, so this sounds going to work since this is a class. Uh, the questions are coming from the students. I'm curious, how many students are in the room? Could you raise your hand if you're a student? So look, it's almost all of them. How many of you are from the School of Engineering? It's almost all of them. Great. So uh, what about our MBAs? Any MBAs? A few of you? Snuck in here. Investment okay. bankers. <laughs> one. I only okay. offended one guy, that two, two people. Great. I'm just curious, how many undergrads? Wow, that's almost the whole group. What about graduate students? Almost the whole group. I don't know. I think I'm <laughs> double counting here. So there I must still be a co-term <laughs> program here. Exactly. Great. Okay. So, first question will be over here. Now, where are you pointing? Over here. So there will be a microphone that will be uh, moving around to the questioners. Steve, this is a question for you. So, so far I've worked in only big companies. I've worked in HP, Intel, IBM, and now Oracle. So when you are uh, hiring senior managers for your team, how do you evaluate the big company experience versus the small company experience? Yeah, I think they are both helpful and depending on the job and depending uh, what you know sort of the portfolio of experiences if we want to take somebody and say look you've got to run a very big project and let's say a big engineering project or a uh, you know, big engineering project and somebody's experience is only doing small engineering projects you got that's a nail-biter you got to really think about it Ooh. On the other hand, if you take somebody who has only run large projects and say, hey, look, you've got to lead a smaller team, that too has a real risk portfolio associated with it. We talk about starters and finishers. We talk about pioneers and settlers. Nobody's really all one or all the other thing, but people are shaped by their personalities. They're shaped by their experiences. And in fact, we benefit from all of these types of people, but in the right job. Uh, when we went outside recently to hire the fellow who's running our search business, we, 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 you know, we got exactly the right person, somebody who had experience, deeply technical, which was super important, and had run large engineering projects because that's, that's absolutely critical. 
On the other hand, Ray Ozzie, who joined us in, as our chief software architect, which was Bill's old title, he'd only really worked, he'd spent a little time at IBM, but very short. He'd been an entrepreneur, he had done startups, but he has a different kind of role in the company. So it's, you want to blend those things, I think, pretty well. Promoting from within, hiring from out, big company, little company. A good company, in my opinion, has got to nurture all kinds of people and all kinds of innovation. Because, you know, the world is not, uh, let me say, monoculture. Great. Next question is over here. Hi, I'm Oxford Sagi. Um, I have a question regarding um, if you could briefly explain what your browser strategy is, given Facebook and uh, a search as well. Well, the br browser, I would say, has a, a couple different, uh, let me give a couple different aspects. Let me start with the browser itself. I think browsing will continue to be an area in which we'll expect innovation in two ways. The browser platform, that is, the ability of browsers to run more exciting, more capable applications, that will continue to climb. I think people do expect, even if you want to go beyond the standards, that things will only proceed in large measure at the speed of standard support, which is a little harder for things to move. There's, so, you know, there's now, what, 43 uh, million websites, something like that. On, I mean, there's a huge number of websites on the planet. They can't be all upgraded. They can't all take advantage of new browsers. But the browser platform's gonna move. We need to innovate in the browser platform. In the browser UI, there's really a lot of innovation still possible. You know, you look at some of the kinds of things we did with accelerators and slices, and our browser competitors are doing their own thing, and you know, the way you work with history and integrate search, there's still a lot more innovation on the UI. Some of the things that we'll do, now we, we have a browser that is absolutely regulated, it's a part of Windows, and therefore it's subject to our consent decree. So whatever we do in the browser, we're going to have a clean interface between our browser and our search service, our browser and, and our own sort of social networking software, Facebook, et cetera. But I think we want to design the browser to allow this notion of, of uh, a social graph, to allow this notion of the search database enhancing the browsing experience to be built in. In our own case, we won't wire it in. Some of our competitors might wire it in so that you're bound to their entire solution. That, that can't be our approach. We have a question back up there. Hey, so earlier you talked about that you thought that there was too much money t chasing too few good ideas or at least too few good companies. In your mind, what's the fatal flaw of preventing those companies from being good? Is it ideas? Is it execution? What do you think the big problem with the companies that you see is incorrectly funded? There are, there are many. There's rarely a really bad idea that gets funded. Okay? So let me not, let me not say that. That's, that's not, that wouldn't be right. On the other hand, there's a higher percentage of companies that don't sort of, uh, let me say, make it. I don't mean make it always in terms of an IPO, but have a long-term life. And too many companies can actually hang on for almost too long with too much money because there has been so much money funding these ideas. At the same time, 
you will get not just the second or third implementation of a good idea funded, you've been getting the fourth, the fifth, and the sixth implementation of a good idea funded. You know, my best way of measuring this is what's happening now is the contraction in money. You know, is there a perfect amount? Let's say there was four times as much venture capital. Would we have four times as much innovation? I, I don't think so. You'd have four times as many companies, but you might not have four times as much valuable innovation. On the other hand, if we had a quarter as much venture capital, I think that would be, you know, in a sense, the world would contract too much. I get asked a lot, actually, by our uh, CIO customers. They say, with the contraction in venture capital, does it mean we're not going to get good solutions to the business problems we face? I don't think the contraction is dramatic enough that we're not going to continue to see most really strong ideas will get funded and reasonably well-funded. Another question? Steve, Walter here. Um, You've convinced me. I'm going to go start a company. Now, the, the Just make sure you build it on Windows. Go ahead. <laughs> sure. Now, the brilliant folks here at STVP have warned me. Everything you do, especially in the beginning of a company, will shape the culture of the company forever. Uh, now, I'd seen you twice before, not personally, on the internet. Uh, one... <laughs> One saying, Did I look good? <laughs> Go ahead, sorry. Once working a sweat saying, developers, 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 developers. And uh, <laughs> one, one getting really, really um, angry and, show and, and like throwing a chair. Now, these are, these are very unique cultural things, which are not necessarily bad. But I want to understand, uh, one, to what extent do you feel that you have shaped Microsoft culture? And two, what are your biggest satisfactions and regrets on how you have shaped this culture. Yeah, I'd, I'd say I feel like I've shaped Microsoft culture a lot. Uh, for better and for worse, and Bill and I together, I mean, it's not, you know, like a couple of parents, I would say. You know, Bill, we shaped each other, because we kind of, in a sense, grew up together. We've known each other since we were 18, 19 years old. We grew up together, we shaped each other, we shaped the company, the company shaped us, and then things, things moved on. And, you know, you can always say, hey, you know, I wish we were more this, I wish we were more that. And at the end of the day, the ultimate test is whether you're able to get done what you want to get done or what you think the market demands from you. And we've had our successes, and we certainly have had our challenges. The thing that in a sense, I find in our culture has been the dynamic, the most dynamic tension is between, you know, I talked about patience and tenacity and, and, you know, sticking to things. That, I think, is a real virtue, but it can come at the price of demanding short-term accountability. So you have a trade-off almost. It's almost like a yin and a yang. Patience versus short-term results. And you actually don't want to, you want to have both of those in proper balance. And we're always kind of struggling. It's like you want passion for technology, but you need passion for customers. And you've got to get kind of the yin and yang. You want to be people who really want to be great individually, but you also need good teamwork. And I think sometimes on the, let me call it the teeter-totter of each of those three dimensions, we're teetering where I wish we were tottering a little more. As, as our <laughs> products are more complicated, 
and we want to have more interdependency because customers are insisting there's even more premium on teamwork as opposed to just individual stardom. You have to balance the culture. I talked already about tenacity versus short-term results. Passion for technology and customer you're always dealing with, even from the time you're a tiny startup. So I think, you know, at least in our own case, it's not that I wish things were different, but I know we have to constantly balance and reinforce and build and, you know, sort of reinforce the behaviors we need in whatever business at that point in time. Great. I know we have another question. Hi, Steve. Uh, appreciate you sharing about your early days. Uh, so what was the reason you dropped out versus completing your degree and then joining Microsoft or whichever the options? And uh, what about your initial funding in your case? How did you manage that when it was difficult? Yeah, it was, it was funny. I was you know, a first-year student, <laughs> happily minding my own business, uh, getting ready to try to pick a summer job. Uh, Bill and I had gone to school together. Bill dropped out. We had stayed in touch. I actually uh, went up and visited Bill up in Seattle the summer before I started at Stanford. And I was trying to make the final call on a summer job, and Bill called and said, hey, look, Steve, geez, how you doing? Gosh, things getting complicated here. We need a business person. What about you? And I said, well, Bill, you know, I'm, I'm in school. And he said, ah, ah, too bad you don't have a twin. And I said, yeah, too bad. Goodbye. And then I thought about it overnight. And I said, well, geez, Bill's the smartest guy I ever met. And I, you know, I can't say everybody I've ever worked with the, earlier at Procter & Gamble, others were the smartest guy I ever met. And I didn't know much about computers, and I didn't know much about software, really. I'd written a couple programs in college and high school. But I said, I should at least check this out. And I called them up, and I said, look, I'm going to go check out these other summer jobs, but then I'll come visit you. And ultimately, what I wound up deciding was it was terribly low risk. I could go if things weren't working out by the end of the summer, he'd fire me, and I'd go back to Stanford Business School. That didn't sound too terrible. If things didn't work out long term, they still have a spot for me, I think, if I want to go back and finish my <laughs> MBA. It's just not that high risk when you get right down to it. I didn't have any bills. I didn't have any family. I didn't, you know, what, what was the risk? And so I said, I'm dropping out. And my friends, many of them, thought I was nuts. There's a couple of professors who are still over there who told me I was nuts. And I wound up, after a month, I agreed with them. I told Bill, I'm quitting. I'm going back to Stanford. And Bill said, no, you're not. You don't get it. And our motto is something he actually said to me to get me to stay. He said, Steve, you don't get it. We're going to put a computer on every desk in every home. You didn't drop out of business school to be the bookkeeper of a 30-person company. Got me to stay, and, you know, in a sense, you could say after that point, I never really looked back. Uh, it wasn't what I saw for myself. When I went to Stanford, I would have told you I would have been a consultant, an investment banker, <laughs> or I would have gone to work for a big company. In fact, I was interviewing for summer job with Ford, where my, my dad had worked. And so I thought of myself more as a big company guy. And 29 years later, I'm a big company guy. <laughs> Great. Super. Great. We've got a question up on the top here. Hi. Um, so there's, there are some other companies that are getting an increasing share of the search traffic market. Um, and Microsoft is doing a good job in investing in smart people to increase the live search um, product. 
Um, nevertheless, uh, being a student, I noticed that uh, Microsoft closed down their book search and academic search product uh, not long ago. I was wondering, in, in spite of, of these, these fallbacks, what is, what is Live's uh, strategy in general in, in improving uh, their search, and specifically in the academic sector? And do startups and their innovation in terms of being partners or acquisition targets play a role in that at all? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we're not just, uh, you know, we're, we're not just uh, you know, sort of a number two or three player. The number one player is a lot bigger than us. And they're, and they're a lot bigger, actually, than Yahoo. Google's a very big company in search. And therefore, you know, we, we are more like a startup than we are like a big guy in the search market. We can't invest in everything the market leader can we're not going to be able to just outdo and outspend somebody whose revenue is many times bigger than ours. So our model, and that's why, as painful as it was, we said, hey, look, we're, if we're going to do anything with book scanning or academic, we're going to have to do it in a different way than Google's doing it. And that's a path we, we, we're choosing. There's some things you've got to do to be competitive, and then there's some things I think we have an opportunity to do precisely because we're not the market leader. Because the, we're not the market leader, we can experiment with new business models like cashback. Because we're not the market leader, we don't have to stay locked into the current user interface for search over time. You know, the user interface drives click-through rate on ads, which drives revenue. And so we're, we have the luxury, the flexibility, like a startup does, to try more new things. In fact, there's a, there is a certain cost of entry but we're going to have to be more disruptive in the way the user and business model works. And, and we know we're going to nonetheless have to be patient and show the right blend of patient and patience and insistence on short-term results. Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot, big role for startups. We've done some acquisitions. We bought a company here in the Bay Area called PowerSet that does natural language technology. Great addition for us. I think the way we partner with content companies and other websites we have some unique opportunities because we have less revenue. We have less to lose than, than the market leader does. It's another way to be different in a way that could be good for partners and for consumers. So we have a number of things, you know, and you'll see it release by release as we move forward, some of the things we're, we're working on. And, but we're going to have to be more like a startup than more like the, the big player, despite the fact our search group is part of a, a big, successful company. Over here, another question. Hi, Steve. Um, so earlier in your presentation, you were talking about that it was a great time for innovation, and all these ideas were happening. And I'm sure you've seen a lot of these ideas happen over your years at Microsoft. So I was wondering, how have you learned to differentiate and characterize these great ideas when they come? Uh, sometimes well. <laughs> sometimes not very well. And I actually think that's it's probably important for anybody who wants to do a startup, anybody who wants to join a place like Microsoft and work on an established or a new product, anybody, I'm sort of like a mini venture capitalist in a weird way because I have to sort of be part of the process of picking which ideas our own people have that we should fund, which new products, which new ideas. Uh, and I think that in a sense, you've got to have a clear sense of what your core competence and core strategy is, and then you've got to be willing to take, you've got to be willing to do the things you must do 
There's some things we absolutely must invest in. Natural language, speech, and voice are going to be fundamental to the changing UI. Good, you know, and we have to invest. Whether we make mistakes or not, we got to keep after it. We have to change the approach if things aren't working, but we have to keep after it. We'll try some new products that are a disaster. The one everybody likes to tease me about from times gone by was a product we used to have called Microsoft Bob. Microsoft yeah. Bob was, was kind of like a low-end word processor and spreadsheet, but it, you know, the screen looked like a house and this dog walked around and talked to you about writing your book reports or something. It was, I mean, it wasn't terrible. It was sort of a, let me say, a precursor to what people are trying to do now with, uh, uh, you know, sort of 3D uh, virtual worlds type user interfaces. It flopped miserably, but I'm glad we did it. We didn't lose so much money that I say to myself, boy, that was a real mistake. Because a few of those, it only takes a few of those to become something important to really make the company. So a clear sense of your core competence and direction, intelligence and understanding of not only what your own people are doing, but what's going on in academia and in startups, and then the willingness to take some risk. That, that would be what I'd say. Good. Next question. Hi, boss. Um, I'm Samir Salman. Um, I'm interning at Microsoft uh, this summer uh, in the virtualization group. Stop by. <laughs> sure. Um, I'm also working uh, in collaboration with the uh, Azure group this semester on hosting a project, uh, cloud application basically on Azure. Uh, even though it's still in the beta release, our experience has been great with it. Uh, my question is, uh, how much attention and resources are you going to give in the future for Windows Azure and what are your expectations about how will it grow and will it be as successful as like Microsoft Windows XP for example? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Moving right along. <laughs> I like to joke. I don't know if anybody ever saw this movie called uh, Three Men and a Baby. Uh, it was a kind of an 80s movie. But you know, the world is now going to be three screens in a cloud. Phone, <laughs> PC, TV, cloud. Three screens in a cloud. And so when you ask what's the future of, let me call it, computing of the future, because our basic business is providing computing platforms. That's where we grew up. That's our roots. When the lady says, you got to know what you care about, that's what we care about. So phone, PC, TV, cloud. And Windows Azure is at the backbone of the cloud strategy. So it's super important to us. It also represents a good part of the future of our Windows Server business and our SQL Server business, which are billions of dollars in aggregate revenue for us. So it's both... A, sort of the future of existing businesses, and it's an opportunity to go create, uh, go create new businesses. So it's very, very important. You don't get the name Windows around Microsoft if you're not important to us. Uh, it's an important part of our strategy. It's an important part of our future. And actually, I, think, I hope it's an important part of the future of many people here who write software, either as, as Microsoft employees or as our, as our partners going forward. Okay. Got a question over here? Hi, Steve. My name's Ed. Um, my question is sort of about risk, but also about um, experiences. So you talked about before, sort of big companies, small companies. What if someone takes a big risk? They uh, takes a big risk. They do a startup. It doesn't turn out very well. But you know, it wasn't because they weren't smart about things. They did their best. How does that um, par up compared to sort of going the safe route? And um, have you got any sort of tips on like? Obviously, you took some risks yourself. What would you sort of say about that? 
Yeah, you know, you're talking about like in a career planning type sense? What are you, what are you, what are you saying? Oh, so saying if I, you know, if I take the risk, I go for a startup and I turn down some really good job offers I've got at the moment, um, later on is that going to come and bite me if the startup doesn't go well or will the, the experience from the startup still help me get there in the long run even though it wasn't successful? Good, exp- I mean, valuable experience is valuable experience. There's nothing actually, I would say, less, uh, startup experience is neither more valuable nor less valuable than big, co- I mean, people want to say, well, startup experience is more valuable or big company. Hey, if you've dug into something, I don't care if it was at a small company or a large company, the key, at least to me, isn't where you were. It's did you dig in? Did you work your, your butt off? Did you perspire? Did you force your brain to really think and have peripheral vision? When I ask somebody like, to tell me about what they did, I don't care where they did it. I want to know, did their brain fan out? Or were they just looking at a narrow little piece? Or were they really thinking broadly? Did they think comprehensively? Could they be concrete about what they did and what they accomplished? If things didn't work, can they be honest and direct? Big company or small company? This didn't work. That didn't work. So that would be the kind of thing that you know, is important to me and I hope to the folks who work for us who are, 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 are you know, evaluating and, and looking at people. Uh, certainly, I think in most people's lives, it's usually interesting to have some experience in bigger environments and smaller environments. You learn differently from both of them. As I said earlier, I got my big and little all in the same place, <laughs> uh, which is unusual. Uh, but at the end of the day, what I tell you most is to just dig in and love what you're doing. Uh, and I think if you love what you're doing and you work really hard at it and you, you really embrace it, heart, body, and soul, I'm not sure it matters too much. I think the biggest mistake most people make on the, when they pick their first job is they don't worry enough about whether they'll love the work. And they worry more about whether it's good experience. There is a time in your life, generally when you're getting... You might pick a school because it's good for you, and you might pick a second school because it's good for you, but by the time you're picking jobs, I really think you've got to pick a job because you really think you're going to love doing the work that you're doing, and it's a mistake not to. Great. We have a question in the balcony. Hi, Steve. Uh, this is Karan, one of the few MBA students uh, in the room. So two quick questions. First, on the bid for Yahoo, what was the rationale behind it, and uh, where do you see it going forward, especially with uh, Oracle acquiring Sun recently? So there's some consolidation which is happening in the industry. And uh, second... Yep, I on, thought that was uh, two. Okay. The second question is more to do with your R&D budget, and you're saying $9 billion. But what's the vision? So budgets are fine, but Microsoft has not been doing a lot of innovation, breakthrough innovation in the past. So where do you see Microsoft taking the lead over the next two or three years? Thank you. Yeah. Let me... Let me first, as, as to Yahoo, uh, it's a long and sort of saga, but at the end of the, which, you know, was not, it was, I'm glad we went down the road. At the end of the day, I think it would have been valuable to get together, but it didn't work. I still think that the, there exist opportunities to, in a sense, almost create a better search product by having more customers and more advertisers to generate more relevant advertising as part of the search offering. Um, that may or may not at some point happen. There may or may not be appropriate discussions. I don't, I don't choose to comment on that today. Your second question, you know, at the end of the day, I'll, I'd first disagree with you. 
I think we've done a lot of innovative things over the last several years, and yet so have others. And I think it's sort of one of the important things to remember. Last five years brought us Xbox Live. It's the most interesting, interactive entertainment thing to come around in the last five years. I'd say other guys have also done very innovative stuff, but we've done good innovation. We've done good innovation in the business space. What people, there's, we have a product called SharePoint, which probably not a soul in the room knows about. But for our business, thank you, there's four souls in the middle, probably work in IT, no, I'm teasing, uh, here in the university. It's gone from nothing to over a billion dollars in five years because it solves fundamental problems in the way information gets managed inside corporations. It's not a consumer sexy product, but there are many cases like that. You take a look at what we did with the user interface of Microsoft Office in the last release. And it's different, but the discoverability, the change in UI, and what that means not only to what we do, but the way people are now following that is quite big. Will I give credit to, to you know, did Apple do a nice job, for example, with the iPhone? Of course they did a nice job with the iPhone, so you give credit. Is Facebook an interesting concept? It's a very interesting concept, and we, we are a partner, we've invested money. And there are many other things that people can also get excited about. We've done our fair share, but of course I'd love to do more. I would have loved to do a higher percent, and we got people working away, uh, again, on, on other future-oriented things. So I understand we have time for one more question, and I'm going to take the liberty since I'm sitting here to ask it. Okay, okay? that's sure. <laughs> and uh, flashback 29 years ago, and put yourself in the seat here, and pretend you were still in school. What do you wish you had learned when you were in school that would have been really helpful to you during your tenure at Microsoft? Okay. There were some things I did learn yeah. that were fantastic, okay? And there were some things I didn't learn. I wish I had taken more computer science classes. <laughs> be honest, I mean, I wish I had. Or if I was going to go in another field, I wish I'd taken more environmental science classes. Or, you know, at the end of the day, I wound up starting in math and physics at Harvard, finishing in applied math and economics and doing business. But real useful things that let me have a deep appreciation for the science, I wish I'd done more. Second thing I would say that was valuable, thank goodness I did one year at Stanford Business School and learned how to read a balance sheet and understand the basics of cost accounting, which is not mathematical rocket science. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. But I'll tell you, there are some basic, there's a basic language of business that it is super useful to be able to speak. Uh, and a little bit of book study really goes a long way. Last thing I'll tell you, probably the two most important classes I did take, and both by luck. When I was at the business school here, I took a course which you can take first or second year in business strategy or something like that, business policy. And there's like a few nuggets that just ring in my head. We studied some case about Kodak and Polaroid, and it talked about what the market leader should do versus the weak number two player in terms of how you vary cost and investment and expenses and business models. I still quote from the darn case all the time to our people in high share businesses and our people in low share businesses. But absolutely the most important class I ever took 
which was random that I signed up for it, was when I was an undergraduate, I took a course on managing arts organizations. And it talked about how managing the symphony, the newspaper, the ballet, it's different than managing corporations, was the theory, because you know reporters don't always focus in on the profitability of the newspaper, and ballerinas don't always care about the profitability. And there's a, some assumption that business people and people who work in businesses always do. What I found is in any tech business, engineers and scientists are awfully darn important. And engineers and scientists probably think more like, oftentimes, like ballerinas and innovators than they, no, I, it's a, the science, the innovation in and of itself, independent of the business goals, are far more important. So some of those soft kind of think about the way to manage and work with people stuff, I lucked into it, but I'd certainly encourage everybody to get a little bit of a flavor of the people side, the language of business, and the science. I think that's the, let me call it the triple crown of preparation. Did we pay you to do an advertisement for the Stanford Technology Ventures Program? <laughs> In fact, yeah, on, no. that, on that note, <laughs> on that note I actually want to um, uh, highlight that Tom and Kathy, Tom Byers and Kathy Eisenhardt, who are the other two uh, leaders of the Stanford Technology Ventures Program, and want to invite all of you to come to all of our other uh, classes and the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Lecture Series, which is open to everyone. And uh, I now want to invite up uh, the two students, Nikhil and Ali, who have a presentation from the students of BASIS. So on behalf of BASES, SCVP, and the ASSU Speakers Bureau, we'd like to thank Steve for coming today. And just one more round of applause for an awesome talk. Thanks a lot. Thanks, everybody. You have been listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.